Welcome to Building Better Businesses, Stories of Decisive Action, a podcast dedicated to helping inspire and support businesses starting out on their sustainability journeys by learning from others who are already working towards becoming better. So we still have with us Dr. Steve Newman, Group Sustainability Director, Banyan Trade Group. A signatory to the United Nations Global Compact since 2018, Banyan Tree is a leading homegrown hospitality group known for its dedication to environment conservation. Steve, we're delighted to have you here today. Would you be able to share more about Banyan Tree's uh, dedication and ethos and how it came to be? Hi, good morning and thank you very much for having me. It's nice to join you all. As far as Banyan Tree uh, Hotels and Resorts go, um, our history uh, spanning back to the 80s, but we just celebrated our 25th anniversary of Banditry Hotels and Resorts in 2019. Um, and travel and tourism operations are often intrinsically dependent on natural heritage. And so as a socially responsible business, we were actually founded with the core value to drive sustainable development. Um, and we see sustainability as starting with our uh, company's um, values. And so we started off with um, a guiding motto to embrace the environment and empower people and to ensure the well-being of our associates, um, what we call our, our, our staff. And it all started in, in 1994 when we opened our first resort in um, Laguna Phuket. And uh, it had taken 10 years for us to develop this resort from the 1980s um, because it was established on an old tin mine um, which the the land was toxic and it was deemed unfit for uh, human inhabitation uh, and it literally looked like a, a lunar landscape a wasteland where there was very little green or anything growing and um, the owners tell the story KP and Claire Chang they tell the story about how they bought this land and they had no idea what to do with it. And so they went around um, getting the help of different scientists um, and academics around the world to figure out how to remediate this land. And thus begins the story where after 10 years of successful remediation planting over 3,000 trees, we transformed this landscape. But I think from that also began our story of collaborating and acknowledging um, what we don't know and the search to try to find out what we can do to make things better and so our, our brand vision has stemmed from this in a way that um, we we look to use tourism as a powerful force to drive positive change um, in the world and this is something that we we see is going beyond just a precautionary approach um, and we've implemented our, our brand for good program whereby we, we look to empower people and um, uh, embrace the environment. Um, and, and so that's, um, uh, that's how we started, and, and, and those philosophies continue to this day. That sounds amazing. Like, what a fantastic start. I, I had no idea about that. It's fascinating. Thanks, Steve. Obviously, conservation is something that's really important to Banyan Tree. Could you share some examples of actions that you've taken or programmes um, that the company has taken on the conservation front? 22 of our properties um, in 10 countries are adjacent to areas of protected status or high biodiversity. Um, and as I mentioned, there's this intrinsic dependence of tourism on the natural environment. And so it's a, it's a business interest to protect and conserve what's around us um, and for us to act as, as stewards 
um, of this. Um, and so our conservation efforts have, have evolved over time, um, largely due to the challenges that we have faced. And I think a, a good example of this is um, what you see we've created in the Maldives, because it's more than just um, educating our guests, which is actually how it started in the Maldives in, in the mid-1990s. We, we have three resorts in the Maldives, um, Bantry, Vabinfire, Angsana, Uhuru, and Velavaru. And at Angsana, Uhuru, um, it started off just by bringing in a marine biologist because we saw the need to educate travelers, promote responsible travel. They wanted to know about the coral reefs that were on their doorstep. Um, and so it became, you know, hiring a marine biologist at that time was a very innovative step. It's not in your normal manning within hospitality. Um, and the marine biologists would take guided snorkels, educate in the water, give talks, um, engage guests to, to plant corals to help the reefs, because that was the reason why people visit. And um, this then started to develop and evolve because we, we quickly realized that, um, you know, we don't have the internal capacity or knowledge to know what needs to be conserved or how to do it. Um, and so this uh, resulted in developing cross-sectoral partnerships with academics around the world. Um, and from this came a, a range of conservation projects, like the, the very first electric reef in the world was built on Angsana Hurud. So this uses an electric current to stimulate the accretion of calcium carbonate and increase the growth rate of corals, um, a very novel technology that now i mean only the other week in in the times there was an article about a hotel in um in mexico that that's doing this and it was big news it was in the times newspaper from the uk um and it, we did it 20 years ago <laughs> and as well as this we partnered with academics to to track the first green sea turtles migrating out of the maldives um we developed the first reef restoration program based at a resort in the maldives and ultimately, our conservation efforts grew that we needed to build the first resort-based uh, marine lab conservation center in the Maldives on Banyan Tree, Vab and Faru in 2003. And, and a second was built on Angsana Velabaru in 2007. And in the same year, we built another one in Bintan, Indonesia um, as well. Um, and now in the Maldives, it is the expectation of the government that Every hotel has a marine biologist. It is seen as essential. If you want to build and open a resort in the marine uh, in the, the Maldives now, you have to have a marine biologist. And our contributions and these marine biologists' contributions are to to monitor the marine environment because what you monitor, you manage, just like any other resource. And so our, our role now has um, continued to evolve in the Maldives, where we're now um, supporting capacity development in others, whereby we've, we've had partnerships with over 20 universities from a dozen countries. We supported NGOs, worked with international NGOs like um, WWF, IUCN. Um, we, we sit on the Scientific Advisory Committee in the Maldives. We co-created the first Maldives Marine Science Symposium, uh, have been technical advisors on numerous projects such as the Coral Reef Monitoring Network in the Maldives. And so the, the goal now is to actually leverage everything that we've learned to help others 
to develop along their their journey uh, as well. And I think the key part of this is that um, uh, we use a a science based approach to conservation with a key partnership creation component. And I think this applies to any business. You can't expect to go in and do conservation work without some partnerships with the experts. Um, and then what we use is we use a, a global framework that we apply in a, a context-based sustainability approach. For example, we look at key global issues such as climate change, changing land use, population growth, invasive species. And then we apply that to each and every context where our properties are, whether it's marine or terrestrial, to protect key habitats, whether it be rainforests or coral reefs, or what we call priority species, which could be um, you know, uh, endangered or overexploited species or those that are ecologically important. And for us within our industry, travellers can play a key role in this. So there are opportunities for travellers to engage hands-on um, as citizen scientists. You know, nowadays everybody has access to a, a camera. They can um, they can report the sightings, and this sort of information and, and engagement it not only provides useful information for us to monitor change, which is needed, but also it provides important um, education and awareness, which frankly is free. And it is the cornerstone, cornerstone of conservation. Um, if you can educate the people, then you can promote best practice and, in our case, responsible travel. Absolutely. And, and it's clear that, you know, the work you're doing in the Maldives and the work you've done elsewhere is real pioneering work, setting a standard for the whole industry. And, you know, the hospitality industry, as everyone knows, was one of the hardest hit industries through the pandemic and is still sort of picking up the pieces um, from that situation, that crisis. And I wondered, did um, the impact of the pandemic, obviously it will have had an impact on your business, your commercial business, but didn't ha- did it have an impact on your sustainability efforts? So where's, was there a trade-off between what you were doing on the sustainability and the conservation front and, and frankly, keeping the lights on? For us, sustainability has been integrated in, in all aspects of the business. So it's not seen as a separate department, which then you can temporarily close down. And I think that if if sustainability is viewed as an addition to business, then often it's the first to be cut. Um, And in our regard, it is so holistic and integrated in what we do, being a core founding value, that it's something that now more than ever needs strengthening. And so for us, the, the, the trade-off um, has not been with keeping the lights on, but rather um, the trade-off associated with the impacts of COVID. For example, you know, um, world heritage sites remain closed, traditional festivals and gatherings have been postponed, funding cuts for biodiversity conservation um, uh, and the impacts of COVID have undone decades of progress on poverty and disease. And so our actions, first and foremost, a bit like our, our values at, at the beginning, um, have very much been to, to safeguard the livelihoods of our associates. Um, and, and we've done this by implementing um, flexible employment programs, rehiring apps, complementary teletherapy sessions, 
an internal learning revolution within our organization to promote resilient self-awareness and self-care. When it comes to our sustainability programs, because of our sustainable financing mechanism, the Green Imperative Fund, and the fact that in 2009 we established the Banningtree Global Foundation, um, which is like the sustainability arm and an, uh, an in-house consultancy for, for the group, we, we're able to continue the work that we're doing to support the communities um, and our conservation work. The primary impact has been access to those during this time and i think uh in that regards there the, there hasn't been uh, a big trade-off but there has been a significant opportunity for business meaning you know out of crisis comes an opportunity and this opportunity has really been to rethink tourism to look at how we can mitigate the impacts on on lives and economies how we can come out of COVID to rebuild a more carbon neutral and resilient tourism with people at the center. And I think, if anything, when we look at the specific calls that the, the, the SDGs make to tourism, um, and we look at the global impact of COVID on um, livelihoods with over 100 million jobs at risk in least developed countries and small island developing states. If anything, it highlights the important role tourism can play in advancing the SDGs as we emerge from COVID. And before, before COVID um, in 2019, we were already developing what we call our Greater Good Grants, which is a program of external support where we give funding to NGOs and individuals uh, around the world um, in the countries where we operate. And um, we, uh, we rolled out our first call um, last year. And during this time of COVID, of course, new challenges come to light, often challenges that aren't immediately apparent. One of the things that we, we really resisted doing was taking a knee-jerk reaction um, to COVID. Um, because some of the hidden challenges that you don't immediately see, things like increased domestic violence and abuse against women, um, the, the challenges of mental health, um, access to water and water scarcity and hygiene, these things are, are slowly revealing themselves. And so our call for our Greater Good Grants for next year, with the deadline of the 30th of September this year, um, is is to address some of these challenges, like say, like physical, mental health, and well-being of women and children, um, fresh water access, alternative livelihood development, um, remote access to education and learning, um, and this greater good grants has um, has really been established um, to encourage partnership much like going back to our origins of how we're able to transform the landscape at Phuket. Here, we're looking to select and connect with agencies that show a broader impact, um, scalability and resource building with their projects. Uh, essentially, we hope to nurture and develop these partnerships to help others to help themselves. Um, and lend support to agencies where we operate, which also encourages not only their action, but our action, the engagement and volunteerism of um, our associates as well.
Thank you very much, Stephen, for highlighting that, you know, comes crises and challenges. There are also opportunities, right? And many, right? We always say, you know, tell business that sustainability is a journey. And from an organizational learning perspective, can you share with us about some of the steps that Bond Entry is taking to help accelerate its own sustainability efforts? And here, I'd love to also hear about how you work with partners uh, since you have locations around the world uh, around responsible supply chain. The, uh, the progress that we, we're taking with sustainability is kind of the notion of the ability to sustain, meaning that it's about improving consistency and harmonizing our efforts across the group and across multiple geographies worldwide. And so for us, it's about developing and, and sustaining our, our practices. And in addition to the, the previous examples, like how we're developing partnership with the Greater Good Grants, um, key to this is a stakeholder engaged approach. And this stakeholder engaged approach requires a two-way discussion. It requires businesses to not cherry pick what we should do or what we think we should do, but it's about having a dialogue with stakeholders, not just shareholders, and the stakeholders being internal and external. I think what you can see, um, you know, the, the, the picture that I painted so far is probably a little different to many businesses because a lot of our sustainability efforts that I'm talking about are also quite externally focused um, and not necessarily policy driven. These are things that we've taken on because we feel it's necessary to support the, the natural and cultural heritage where we reside. It's, it's the main reason why people travel halfway around the world to visit a destination. And if we impact that, and if we are not continuing to be stewards of that, then then it's it affects our business and so for this it requires us going beyond traditional boundaries much like we did when we set up the conservation labs we look to go outside of our industry and engage with academia ngos to create these partnerships um and and as i mentioned in doing so it's it's about taking a, a context-based approach so i feel that um the progress we're making, we're very much, all of us are on a journey of learning and discovery. And an important part of this is also to share our experiences um, and to learn from each other. There's no, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. Um, and often we learn more from our failures them from our successes. Um, I mentioned it was our 25th anniversary in 2019. And as part of that, we we published a, a, a book that's available on our in, investor website um, on the 25, the story of the 25 year history of, of our journey. Um, and, and it talks about the successes and the failures that we encountered. Um, so that others, wherever you are in your journey, can can learn from this. And I feel that this this sort of dialogue is very important. And so we've we increasingly engage with with roundtables, international NGOs, um, organisations like the UNGS, so that um, we can um, uh, work with the SDG ambition 
we can share our knowledge, but also we're continuing to learn ourselves. As an industry, it's constantly evolving and there are always new opportunities. And frankly, this is, this is what I love about uh, the, the industry, that, that this evolution um, and the need to always uh, strive for betterment um, is, is what drives me and supports us in this role. Um, and so I think um, tourism as a sector represents con considerable global potential to deliver on the, the SDGs. I mentioned the specific calls, um, but one of the biggest ones is partnerships. And if we're going to achieve collective success, then we need to come together collectively to do so. And this sometimes means working with business competitors, um, with different industries, uh, with members of the community. It means talking to people that sometimes don't want to talk to you. It means not just listening to those that speak the loudest, but actually trying to get an informed consensus from everyone. And so I, I mentioned that um, COVID has been an opportunity. And, and for us, we are, we're reevaluating our material analysis this year to identify as we come out of COVID, what should we be focusing on on the, on the road to 2030? And I think that, um, you know, we, we weren't due to do this for a couple more years, but because of COVID, I felt it was necessary for us to stop and take stock and speak to our stakeholders. Um, and figure out what they think is important and what we think is important and how we can align to, to support. Um, and, you know, all of this comes to stakeholder engagement. And many companies still don't know what that is, how to do it. It's not always easy. When we're working within our specific communities, creating um, partnerships with the communities takes a lot more work than I think many businesses accept. It's about repeated, open, transparent communication with partners within the community. And a, and a great part of that is you get to evangelize your philosophy um, and your approach to business. Um, so, you know, coming out of COVID, supply chains are of particular importance due to the disruption that they've, that they've encountered. Many businesses, ourselves included, are looking into to shorten these supply chains to improve their resilience, to increase the support we give to local communities, um, but also rather, I mean, to, but also to to leverage the power of our dollar spending, whereby we do business with individuals and businesses that share our beliefs as well. And I think in this way, we mustn't underestimate this. Sustainability, it is about people, planet, profit as well. And for businesses, if you, it doesn't matter what ambitions you have to do good. If the business fails to uh, succeed and it, and it ceases to exist, then all of your ambitions to, to do good cease to exist and all of those that you support. And we shouldn't be ashamed to also talk about the financial support that businesses create within communities and, and the livelihoods that they support. And, and for us, supporting those livelihoods, um, you know, there's a lot of power you have in order to change how people do, do business, to, to uphold the 10 principles of the, the United Nations Global Compact and to protect human rights and the environment.
Thank you so much, Steve, for sharing that very interesting transition and journey to sustainability. Now, as companies pick up steam on their sustainability efforts, so is the demand for talent. Here in Singapore, it's expected that 50,000 sustainability-related jobs will be created over the next 10 years. And given that sustainability, as you said, is ever-changing, lots of problems to be solved, that we need to explore the possible, what sort of skill sets and mindset do you look for when you hire for various sustainability roles? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you see that so many companies now are looking to hire for sustainability. It's definitely an area of growth. And I really enjoyed um, joining the, the youth forum with um, UNGS uh, the other month um, because getting to speak and, and to advise others about this opportunity, like I say, it's an opportunity that I hadn't considered. And I think it's one that many people, um, they don't always know what it entails. It seems like a bit of a black box where you take loads of different skills and you have to be a master of everything and you, you put it in a box and shake it and, and something good comes out. I think increasingly, um, when I'm I'm looking to bring people in on sustainability, I'm looking at a lot more soft skills than hard skills these days because the uh, a lot of the, the the hard skills can be taught and developed, um, whereas um, making sure people have the right soft skills um, is a key foundation um, to developing in uh, along this career path. You know things like um, advocacy, diplomacy. EQ and, uh, and empathy, being able to be diplomatic and engage with stakeholders, whether they're internal or external. Um, you have to be a, a cheerleader and a motivator. Um, there'll be many times in the role where you try to do something and there are so many obstacles, so many different opinions of individuals that it can be disheartening at times and you have to maintain that positivity. Um, I, I think key is being is having a willingness to learn. I, I still feel like I'm a student uh, and I'm always looking to learn new things. And I think that curiosity and a growth mindset is is very important because there are new there are new opportunities all the time. What was once impossible may now be possible uh, or probable. Um, in the sense that, um, I mean, even simple things, you know, eliminating single use plastic, you know, many of our properties had a look, some of them made the changes, we couldn't find alternatives. And then six months later, alternatives were on the market. Um, and so you need to have that persistence, you need to be, uh, you need to be a, a good strategic thinker um, with, with um, some strong problem solving and innovative ways of thinking um, and often you need to be able to navigate a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty but I think key here is is um, you need to not be afraid to fail I think you need to be able to um, try and learn and and companies need to not be afraid to fail they need to they need to learn and um, progress their their journey as well i think from the hard skills side um certainly the the quantitative skills do help um but uh again we in many companies nowadays um 
there is support for these sorts of things. Uh, it's good to have um, experience with project management and, and working within business because you need to be able to translate um, what you need so that it makes sense and it can be implemented within uh, a business sense. I think overall, though, um, if you're passionate and willing to learn, I see it as a role that many people can grow in. If you if you look at the the practitioners in our industry, um, uh, and by industry I mean sustainability, um, you'll see that people come from all different backgrounds. They can be engineers, they can be business people, they can be um, scientists, um, they can be conservationists. Uh, I know people that have worked with elephants and orangutans who now work in sustainability. Um, and and I think it's important to show that you walk the talk, which means I think that um, um, if you're able to volunteer in your community, show that you personally are taking action, um, show that you believe in, and can lead the way in that change, then I think that's important too. It's interesting, isn't it, that even just a few years ago, the field of sustainability was really sort of, um, you would find it within academia, you would find it within the NGO sector, you wouldn't really find it sort of front and centre within the business sector. And now, of course, that's where it is. And we're really interested to hear from you, Steve, because you came from an academic background and went into um, a commercial enterprise. What was that transition like? And um, Maybe you could share also a couple of sort of personal um, views on what it's like to work in sustainability now, because it feels like it's it's a challenging time, but a very exciting time. So we'd love to hear um, your personal reflection on that. Yeah, you, you're right. Uh, a few years ago, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have found me in sustainability either. I mean, I I, I joined the the company uh, all, uh, 2015. And uh, prior to that, uh, I was in academia for um, almost 20 years. Um, and honestly, I had never actually considered um, going into the private sector. I had worked in academia. I had worked for nonprofits. Um, and, uh, um, of course, a lot of the work that I did, um, I, I was an ecologist, um, and I was doing a lot of conservation work. But I was living in very remote communities. Uh, I lived on small tropical islands for uh, about 15 years. I mean, I, I spent um, four years on an island with a population of 38 people at one point and about 38 billion mosquitoes. Um, so it, it wasn't always easy. Um, it was often challenging. But what I found was... Um, in order to survive in these locations, you had to connect with the local communities. And I found that, um, I mean, I ran a, a marine lab, Hofstra Marine Lab in, in Jamaica for a couple of years. And um, uh, I wouldn't see another white person for months. Um, you know, notorious where I, where I lived either. And so I, I had to learn to connect with the communities. Um, and wherever I worked, I found that uh, I was actually giving back developing local capacity. Uh, I, I mean, I, I was teaching um, school teachers, even politicians in Jamaica about marine conservation. Um, I, I taught how to 
type and use computers and I did gardening in um, um, people's homes uh, when I lived in the Turks and Caicos Islands. And so I think there's there's always been a, a little bit of that sort of philosophy. And my transition to um, to, to banyan tree um, was um, a chance introduction and it opened my eyes up to the possibility to engage more hands-on. I mean, my, my ecological academic work was very much with a focus for conservation. Um, but working with a business um, allows you to actually be very hands-on and engaged with that conservation. I like to get my hands dirty uh, and I like to be um, a, an agent of that change. And um, and I, I joined Banyan Tree because of the strong belief uh, and commitment of the owners um, and having been in academia so long where you're where you're fighting for you, you're constantly writing grants, trying to get funding, living on soft money, um, uh, that the life isn't very stable uh, it's publish or perish. And um, sometimes you, you do a lot of research and you publish, but I still wanted to see that impact. I wanted to see that change. And if we're going to succeed for the sustainable development goals, then businesses have a key role to play. I think businesses still face the challenge that we don't always know what to do. We still need guidance from government, from other industries to say, this is what we should be doing. At the moment, what I see is working in sustainability. It is an exciting time, but there's also a lot of uncertainty. Increasingly, businesses want to do good, which is fantastic to see. I still see a lot of very poor greenwashing. I still see a lot of people spouting alignment with the SDGs without showing impact. How to measure impact is actually very, very difficult because outcomes and impact are two completely different things. I could say, oh, we built, we built a school and we get lots of nice photos for a press release. That's an outcome, but the impact is improving literacy rates ultimately improving jobs and livelihoods of individuals. And this is still an area where businesses are struggling to connect the dots and they need the support of governments and agencies to figure out exactly what they should be doing. Because often businesses, and something that I've learned from being in, 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 in business now, is that um, often, uh, you know, even within our group, there, there's um, a real willingness to to do these things but people need to be told what to do people don't always have the time to figure out okay yes i know i need to conserve resources but they're so busy keeping the lights on and maintaining operations that they don't have the time to do the research to figure out what is the new innovative step what should I be doing now? And that's the opportunity for NGOs and others to, to step in and, and provide that guidance, not to dictate, but to provide ideas, um, incentives and guidance for businesses to follow. Um, and for me, um, I like this challenge. For me, um, coming from academia, um, when I first started working in business, I was very much known as um, you know, the, the, the academic and, and, and this guy. But what this actually taught me, what my PhD taught me was that it's about problem solving. 
it's about deciphering the complexities of a problem to find a solution. It's about, you know, if there's an obstacle, not to give up, to go around, to go over, to go under, to get to that solution. It's about absorbing large amounts of information to understand the unknown and to realize the possible. And for me, good science was always about simplifying a problem and communicating it so that anyone can understand. Because when I was trying to do conservation, I might understand everything I need to know about an animal. But if I don't change the beliefs of people, you can't conserve that animal. It's the people that take the action and make the choice. And so those sort of lessons came from my my, my former life um, to, to help me in sustainability. And I mean, I've still kept my toe in academia to a degree because with our conservation labs, I still co-advise PhD students and master's students. So we're, we're still on that boundary of exploring and discovering something new. But I think the industry of sustainability as a whole is like that, where it's an exploration and a discovery to try to find solutions to some of the, the biggest challenges mankind is facing. Some great um, insights there, Steve, and um, particularly useful for me at the moment because I'm hiring at the moment. So it was good to hear your um, your views on on the sort of skills that's needed. And, and I agree, the softer skills are super important um, for this type of work. Now, as a final question that we like to ask all of our guests on this podcast, we'd love it if you could share three tips that you would give to any companies who are listening to this when it comes to building a better business? Okay, I mean, this is actually quite a difficult question because um, where to start? So depending on where companies are on their journey, but I'll keep it simple. Number one, I would say start now, but be consistent. I mentioned the ability to sustain. The, the recent IPCC publication highlights the need for action, but it also reaffirms that it's not too late to take action. But the longer we delay taking action collectively, the harder it will be to undo any expected impacts. So as they say, the best time to start was yesterday and the second best time is today. And I think when you start, as I've mentioned, it's good to be ambitious, but also be realistic with it. Um, don't let ambition create indecision or, or stand in the way of starting. And don't let the fear of failing stand in the way of starting what you should be afraid of is um not even trying um my second point would be celebrate the small things um you know action doesn't have to cost a lot so when you're starting out um there are lots of small things that you can do and you shouldn't be afraid to celebrate those small things. Just because other companies are celebrating all these big things, you shouldn't be comparing yourself um, against the level where others are at, but comparing yourself with yourself. Um, and these small things, these small actions and decisions, they add up to something bigger. And if you approach it in the right way and you're tracking your progress, you're you're, you're monitoring and measuring so that you can, you can manage. You will see big change over time. And so businesses shouldn't be, in celebrating small things, they shouldn't be afraid to share what they do. Yes, it will aid their business, 
Don't sugarcoat it. Don't greenwash it. But I do believe businesses should be duty bound to to share what they are doing. Um, it's something that we as a company for a long time, we've done a lot of things, but we haven't been very good at telling people about about it. Um, perhaps out of fear of of looking like we're just, you know, tooting our own horn. Um, but in fact, now we're able to speak from uh, a position of experience. And my third tip would be seek partnership and collaboration. There's no reason to go it alone. Learn from the experiences of others without comparison. There's no need to reinvent the wheel and make the same mistakes. Um, and take a stakeholder versus a shareholder approach. And I think there's a lot of businesses and individuals out there that are willing to share to help others learn to create uh, collective success. Fantastic tips there, Steve. Thank you. And and tips that can be applied to any business in any sector, regardless of where they are on their journey, actually. So thank you for that. Dr. Steve Newman from the Banyan Tree Group, thank you very much for joining us today.